Ladies and gentlemen, a few words of introduction. First of all, the Chevening Gurukul Public Lecture. Uh, what a title. Uh, all of you will be familiar with the Chevening Scholarships. The British government have gone on very successfully for a long time. One of the longest running single courses of the Chevening Scholarships is the Chevening Gurukul Scholarships. Since 1997, when these scholarships were created to celebrate 50 years of post-independence cooperation between India and Britain, each year a group of 12 rising leaders from all professions and all parts of India have been here at the London School of Economics studying such issues as globalization, leadership, challenges, international organization, and of course, the inevitable um, effects of climate change. Each year for the last five years, a public lecture has taken place. The first was given by Lord Stern on the subject of climate change, which is why we return to it each year. Um, but we have varied, we've strayed across many topics uh, of concern to rising leaders in India and indeed in the rest of the world. International cooperation is of course a central issue and hence we're delighted to have with us this evening the Secretary General of the Commonwealth Mr. Kamalesh Sharma, formerly India's High Commissioner to the UK, and before that, the permanent representative of India to the UN. A long and very distinguished career in the Indian Foreign Service, um, and of course, fitting in not only key roles in places like Geneva and the UN in New York, but also those difficult ambassadorial places such as the German Democratic Republic and Kazakhstan. I have to say that uh, Mr. Kama has spoken here before in his previous capacity as the Indian ambassador, so he's familiar with the London School of Economics. And it is a great pleasure for us all to have him with us this evening to address us about the global value of the Commonwealth. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm, I'm delight delighted to be able to speak at all because this morning <clears throat> My voice had gone completely south. I came on the weekend after a very long tour, four weeks abroad. I was wondering whether I'd be able to do this. But things I'm, um, you know, unfortunately for you, things have improved. I can speak now. Um, but I'll keep it a little short, if you don't mind, uh, to, to, to be intelligible. I was very attracted to this. I see Purna sitting here. When she said, will you speak? I said, yes, anything which is called Gurukul, <laughs> you can count me in because the Indian word has a tremendous resonance. Guru, of course, the mentor, usually a spiritual mentor, can be a mentor of any type. Uh, and Kul is the extended family, if you like. People led uh, by the Guru, but above all, the connotation is one of wisdom. And very often I say about the Commonwealth that if there's anybody which exercises the global wisdom function uh, and always has, it is, uh, the Commonwealth. And I was very glad that the team was able to come to Marlborough House a little earlier and see that magnificent place where, where we have our, our officers. The um, Commonwealth is very often regarded as a continuation of the past, but in a different sense. The word Commonwealth was apparently first used in 1884 by Lord Rosebery, and, and this was in Australia when he referred to a Commonwealth of Nations. And then I think the mid-20s, there's another meeting of the, the old Commonwealth, of all the dominions, 
when this will be all independent, but uh, we, we owe a common allegiance to the crown, and that's what united us. The modern Commonwealth dates from 1949, and it's quite remarkable. That at that point of time, there were only three developing countries, and these were India, Ceylon at that time, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan, and they met here together with those from the old Commonwealth and decided that they wanted to renew this. Now, at that point of time, it was by no means a foregone conclusion that this would be possible because in the euphoria of independence and the freedom fight, you wanted to begin anew. What would be the reason why you'd like to associate yourself with a body which had an imperial association extended to so many decades? And here Nehru's role was, was quite pivotal, and he explained why we should carry on with the Commonwealth in a very simple way. If people from different parts of the world, in a new world that is emerging before us, if they want to get together and discuss things of common interest so that we can have policies which are um, useful and benign and helpful, constructive to everybody, what can be the harm in it? Why should we load it? with all kinds of past history. So they sat together here in London and they devised a formula which basically said the same thing as in the 20s. We're all independent nations, but this time around, as a symbol of our independent decision-making, we don't owe common allegiance to the crown, but we see the crown as the head of the commonwealth. We're happy to, to carry on uh, in that way. Now this very ability to transcend and to seamlessly, as it were, move from the old to the new is the first point of wisdom, which was exercised. Now, if uh, imitation is the biggest form of uh, flattery and compliment paying, then the Commonwealth made a point in 1949, which was seen by many other metropolitan powers who also had a colonial experience of their own, wanting to do the same. I've been repeatedly told by the head of Francophonie, for instance, he is, of course, a very gracious person, Abdul Diouf, said, you know, basically, we started doing with the Francophonie what we saw was happening in the Commonwealth, and it was so full of wisdom and rightness and the way we should all proceed. Uh, we meet very often, he's very much interested in what we are doing, and he says, you know, in, in terms of, uh, in, as institutions are, you are the older brother. Lusophone came uh, a little later. So the very fact that we could take a view, conscious view, put yourself in the year 1549 when there are eight countries, now there are 54, taking this decision at that point of time, I always regard it as one of the great uh, uh, decisions of statesmanship of the last century that this could happen. What belonged to the past? What was negative in the past? What was bitter in the experience of the past? It was agreed that we would allow that to evaporate and what brought us together in a commonality of experience, we would work with it uh, in a constructive way and move forward. The second consequence of this was an internationalism which was created. Now the genius which Commonwealth has shown throughout its existence is to be able to demarcate a common ground on which everybody could stand, a kind of globalism in effect, whether you were from St. Kitts and Nevis in the Caribbean or Papua New Guinea uh, in the Pacific or from Africa or Asia you were able to find a way forward in which all of you had a stake. Is the first organization which said, we want to make a contribution in terms of where all of you, all of us have a stake. The UN in that sense was a very different kind of an organization. So firstly, in terms of bridging what was past with the present, it did it with dramatic success. Secondly, it's very practice of meeting together and discussing progressively issues meant that it conceded that a globalist outlook is what you need in the modern world. And the third contribution which it made, which is remarkable, was 
that unlike many other organizations where the heavyweights or the big players tend to dominate the proceedings and the agenda and the way things are done, in this organization it is not the case. In fact, um, I've had experience of two chogums. This is one organization where most of the talking is actually done by smaller countries and the others listen. The equality of voice which you enjoy here. And progressively, as colonies became independent, they joined the Commonwealth and they internationalized themselves almost instantaneously by virtue of the fact that you could join this organization, listen to all of these points of view, and whereas your political horizon before was restricted to the national uh, theater of seeking and securing independence, you were able to see yourself in some senses as a global personality as well, with a global uh, vision and, and, and requirements uh, as, 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 you, as you expanded. These are the three functions which it was able to exercise at a time when it could not be assumed that this, this amount of statesmanship and wisdom could be so quickly uh, demonstrated. But thereafter, it did something even more remarkable. Excuse me. I think I have to keep on sipping this. When the Secretariat was formed in 1965, the leaders took the view that this is not going to be a purely intergovernmental organization. There's going to be one part of it, but the other part has to be the civil society. Now, I don't know whether the term civil society existed in this way in 1965. They were called NGOs. But in 65, for the leaders to say that we'll move equally on a broad front intergovernmentally as well as a people's organization, the fruits of it are visible now. In the last meeting we had of Chogum, hugely successful, I think a pivotal Chogum in Perth just now, the vibrancy of Commonwealth at work was not just restricted to what the heads were doing, but what a thousand odd participants in the youth forum were doing, more than a thousand odd participants in the business forum were doing, and an equal number in the People's Forum, they had their own charter, the Civil Society Charter, were doing. We have 90-odd organizations that serve the Commonwealth that have a remit to help each other wherever they would be in the Commonwealth as a professional organization, a humanitarian organization, culture-based organization, or any other. So the Commonwealth became global, bridged the past, uh, with the present, immediately took into account the fact that the human community, the global community, has to consist equally in terms of rights, irrespective of size and endowment, and then saw that the way of the future has to be a participative one in which it has to be a people's um, uh, commonwealth. We define ourselves as basically being driven by the three Ds equally, which is development, uh, democracy, and diversity. One of the first things which Nelson Mandela did when he came here, and of course, the Commonwealth through its eminent persons group in that great moment of transition in Africa was one of the pivotal players uh, in South Africa, the dismantling of apartheid. His first request was that I'd like to go to Marlborough House and recognize this. And uh, what he said there was a memorable phrase. He says, I am here because the Commonwealth makes the world safe for diversity. So we call it the ultimate network in all of these ways. It's the ultimate network because it spreads all over the world. Substantial number of people from all the continents. It's the ultimate network because it spreads in time in the past and in the future. Uh, it is that because it embraces everybody, uh, constituting a society, because it 
embraces all shareholders in the same uh, kind of uh, an aspiration. Over time, we've had a body of declarations starting from our first shogun of Singapore in 71. Then as soon as the Cold War was over, the Commonwealth was one of the organizations which took the lead after the Second World War in the redefinition of the global society. But as soon as the Cold War was over and that overarching bilateral global rivalry between two superpowers uh, gave way, was once again an organization that moved very, very quickly to take advantage of the new environment globally. Its uh, seminal declaration happened shortly after that in Harare in 91. Thereafter, we've had other declarations like the Latimer House Principles, which demarcate the three, the three pillars of, uh, of state governance, uh, separation of judiciary and legislatures, and, uh, and bureaucracy. We had an Aberdeen principle which said that democracy on the top is important, but democracy at the grassroots is equally important and created a body which would encourage democracy at the grassroots uh, uh, too, and also created in 95 a body which would look at the value systems which we had created and how they were being observed. And this was uh, this happened in, in Millbrook. In Port of Spain, which was the last shogun, we assembled all of this together and we had an affirmation of the Commonwealth uh, values and principles which incorporates all of this. One of the observations, and if you like criticisms, which uh, the Commonwealth leader was very sensitive to, was that given all of this, is our template or is the benchmark which we observe in the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group too high. In other words, we meet and many countries have been suspended for violating democratic constitutions, for having had a military coup and so on. But is it not time that we were ready to engage once more uh, at a level when you don't have to point to broken crockery, but you can also look at the state of the crockery uh, or b b before, it, uh, before the worst happens. And uh, the leaders told themselves that we would like to see two reports two years ago, one from the Ministerial Action Group itself, from the nine foreign ministers, and one from another body to be created by me as Secretary General, which would be the eminent persons group. So these two reports were produced uh, in Perth. And uh, they have come out with recommendations which have been accepted in part and which will be further evaluated and studied uh, in, in the time to come. One of the important recommendations, the most important ones, I think looking back people will see the Perth Shogam as one of the um, uh, pivotal ones, a landmark one, a very important staging post and value setting for the Commonwealth because the degree of self-scrutiny which the member states have now agreed to was uh, an outcome of that, of that shogun. In other words, the recommendation of the ministers that let us look at certain benchmarks which are very important for the culture of democracy, for the rule of law, and for human rights, and agree that we are prepared to be judged and engaged on preserving those, those great values, such as respect for the democratic constitution, culture of democracy, treatment of the opposition, uh, independence of the judiciary, the Latimer House principles uh, that I mentioned, uh, policy of free information, dissemination of information, media policy, and all of these have been spelt out as areas in which now greater scrutiny and engagement can take place. There was a perception that CMAG or the Ministerial Action Group had developed an image, too much of an image of being a punitive or a censorious body because all it seemed to be doing 
was to meet when there was a huge democratic train wreck and to point this out. And of course, we worked to try and rectify the situation and get this derogation out of the way, and we succeeded in many of these cases. But the feeling was that the CMAG must, see, must be seen as a partner, as, as, as partner engaging in this uh, um, broad menu of values that we had given ourselves and not just wait till something very drastic had happened. This is now to be followed up with a mechanism uh, which has to be created so that credibility can be uh, created in the member states that it's uh, working in a way in which the member states would require. And this will happen over uh, the next year. Now, to, as a background to the point of what is the subject for my uh, talk today, a global value, what I've told you is of, is of relevance. It's because we acted in this way that it has been possible for the Commonwealth to exercise an influence in value setting across the globe. In NAPAD, for instance, in Africa, we know the new uh, Partnership for Africa initiative. We know the peer review mechanism, which was introduced in Africa as well. I mean, it's pretty plain that when that happened, it became possible because of the 18 members of the Commonwealth inside Africa, which had already done this for the Commonwealth. In fact, a lot of what happened in Africa, you know, mirrors a lot of what had already happened uh, in the Commonwealth. In the Pacific, I was told by many ministers that when they wanted a similar regional value setting for themselves, in other words, the world is coming up as regions, both in terms of value creation as well as in terms of wealth creation. And when regions met, as in Africa and in the Pacific, they said, what is the value setting we can have? Then they also reached out for what they had already done in the Commonwealth. In fact, I was told that the Biketawa Declaration, which was then adopted by them, uh, was, was close, closely followed the documents from the Commonwealth that already existed. We know from um, the Caribbean already, there were most of the countries there overlap with the Commonwealth. What they were able to do in CARICOM in their own region, there were old history of democratic uh, governance, was once again very much a uh, mirror of what you know, they were able to do in the, in the Commonwealth. The importance of this is that over time, what it is that you see yourselves collectively as being valuable for yourself as a people gets established. It's difficult to put a finger on it, but it's a process of sedimentation whereby a firm foundation of values can be created. One of the examples which I would give of this is the Moe Ibrahim Foundation Index, which as many of you would know is, is a highly uh, credible one. It has very high benchmarking for good governance and every year it gives its report uh, and announces uh, the results of, well, I mean, it's a kind of mark sheet, I suppose, and uh, the awards are given accordingly, and how, in some of the areas that I have already mentioned, the countries of Africa are doing. And I was invited about a month ago when the last foundation report was released. In the first, the first country was uh, Commonwealth country that was Mauritius in the first eight countries which scored the most in good governance Africa seven were from the Commonwealth in the last ten there was not a single one um, this in itself is an indication of uh, the global effect that the Commonwealth has been able to exercise both consciously by members applying the principles they had first agreed to in the Commonwealth, in their own regions, and then over time being able to build them up in a way in which it gets demonstrated in this way. Um, being an organization which is uh, 
which expresses and embodies so much variety makes the Commonwealth a kind of microcosm of the world. It has some of the biggest countries in the world like India, emerging economies like India and South Africa. All the continents are on it. All industrial economies are in it. In Africa, you have from the West, Nigeria, from the East, Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya, from the South, South Africa, you know, the bigger states of Africa in it. It has 32 states which have a population of less than a million and a half. It has landlocked countries. Half of the SIDS category, small island development states, consists of uh, Commonwealth states. It has all the faiths, all the peoples of the world represented in it, all kinds of stakeholders, economically, socially, politically, are uh, in it. So that when this body, given its complexity and variety, is able to come to a resolution of what is in the collective good for the Commonwealth, it already is a template or an idea which is worthy to be seen globally because the variety in the world is not significantly greater than the variety in the Commonwealth. This is the reason why when the Commonwealth applies its mind to something, I've already spoken enough about the, as with the value side of the Commonwealth, and the effect it has had, when it applies its mind to other aspects of uh, collective existence, it comes up with what you might call proto-global products. One of the important ones was on debt. Many of us know about HIPIC, Highly Indebted Poor Countries Initiative. The IMF ran with it. It made a very big difference globally to the idea of development seen coherently linking what's happening in the debt profile to what's happening on your, in your development programs. The idea of resilience and sustainability is linked to it because if this profile is not clearly known and visible, then it is impossible for, for projections to be made whereby you can say that over a period of time an economy, for instance, is sustainable. This idea came from first a meeting of finance ministers of the Commonwealth, adopted by the heads, then accepted uh, by, the, by, by the world. The idea of resilience and vulnerability is an idea which has been accepted by the World Bank. The reason I mention it is partly because the question is often asked, what is it that the Commonwealth is doing uh, which is not already being done somewhere else? And the answer to that is that of course, it may be handled by other institutions, but the perspective which the Commonwealth brings of the small states, vulnerability, the need for resilience, hearing the small voices that are not heard elsewhere, brings a peculiar value and weight to it. One of the commentators said that, I think they were talking in terms of uh, GATT at that point of time, that the world seems to be divided into decision makers and decision takers, sometimes also expressed in the green room phenomenon. Well, that phenomenon is absent from the Commonwealth. And therefore, an introduction of the idea that every human community, irrespective of size and endowment, has an equal right to a place in the sun, is a driving force behind the Commonwealth. And we keep on pointing out aspects that are being neglected. So in debt, we were able to do it with IMF, with uh, vulnerability index, developing those index indexes, deciding what are the constraints of resilience uh, uh, we were able to do with the World Bank. And as I was leaving my office, this is lying on my, my, my desk, I brought it along, we are going to have a meeting with the World Bank, it's called Growth and Development in Small States in Malta. Uh, we just, in fact, just finished it uh, yesterday. In the areas of inclusive growth, growth with resilience, debt sustainability, all of this was introduced uh, uh, by us. Take an issue of migration of skills. Now, it is a fact of the world that whereas all talents are needed in the developing world, you cannot stop a migration of skills where they are better rewarded and they're better used. 
But in this world where this is taking place, this kind of migration of skills, what is it that can be done to alleviate the consequences of it? There are two protocols with which the Commonwealth is associated. One is teachers' recruitment uh, protocol. The other is health workers, mainly nurses and so on. One has been accepted by UNESCO in Paris and the other one by the World Health Organization. Here's, here are another two organizations, this time of the United Nations. The others were Bretton Woods institutions who saw the value of what the Commonwealth was trying to do. The integrity of education systems in the developing world should not be threatened, for instance. Remittances, how they are made. What is it that these people receive? Is it fair? Um, all of these considerations by the, by the receiving country and by the sending country uh, have now been accepted uh, by uh, these organizations are now uh, global currency. In trade, we've had an old association in helping small states argue their corner and their views as effectively as they can. We've had an advisory service in, uh, in Geneva to help these countries they were there in the Doha round. They are there right now. And in fact, we've gone one step ahead. We have one small states office in uh, New York, and we have another one in Geneva now created a few months ago, specifically to help our small uh, states particularly to be able to mainstream themselves in the multilateral discourse and participate in it. Because of capacity constraints, it is natural for many of these states to say, we have a human rights council, we don't think that we can participate in it very well, we can't sign human rights, uh, subscribe to human rights conventions, because all the duties that come with it is not something we with our capacity can undertake, but we step up and say, we'll help you do that, we'll help you with this periodical uh, review, we'll help you fulfill your obligations, we'll help you build your national human rights organizations, help you with domestic legislation, whatever help you need in truly making your own society sustainable and resilient. In trade is a similar thing which we do. We have a program called Hubs and Spokes, which is both to help them with market access in richer country markets, particularly Europe, as well as in export uh, uh, creation and, and, and export finance. In trade, we keep on expanding our remit and seeing what is it that we can do more. Climate change, global warming, the first document from an organization several years before the Rio conference is from the Commonwealth Summit in Lankawi, which drew attention to this global phenomenon, this huge global challenge which was coming upon us which required a collective response. We've stayed with it and made a contribution as required as we went along. In Port of Spain, for instance, the idea of a $30 billion startup fund for, the, for emergency investment in, uh, in, in the most affected, existentially affected countries was an idea which was accepted in the Chogum or the summit of the Commonwealth in Port of Spain and then adopted you know, a couple of weeks later in, in Copenhagen. That was one substantial outcome which came out of that. Right now we are engaged in financing of global uh, of climate change because technically there are these 18 or 19 agreements from which money can be um, sourced, but it's extremely difficult for these small states to know even the first form that has to be filled. And there's a larger debate of advocacy where we have been active on behalf of the small and the vulnerable states across the spectrum. We had in 2008 a big conference, a kind of a mini-summit, the first mini-summit uh, we, we have held. It came up with what's called the Marlborough House Declaration. And the point of that is where in the, wherever in the world you're having multilateral negotiations, it must take into account all of these ideals whereby there is universality of outcomes in the decisions that are taken. And we try and make uh, our contribution as we go along. And in, in Perth, we decided to step up our act. We've got a Lake Victoria plan in, in, in climate change as well. 
a big vehicle which offers itself right now is the G20 and we are working on it. I wrote to the first meeting in Washington, I wrote to all, not we, we've got five members in the G20, five Commonwealth members. And I wrote to all 20 and to these five as well, that this is finally a vehicle that is being created whereby the concerns of those that are not on the high table can be brought to the high table for discussion and resolution. 90% of the world's GDP may be on that high table, but in, you know, 90% of the world's countries are out of it. And there we act very closely with the Francophonie. My counterpart in Francophonie and I jointly wrote an article, G20 or T20. Uh, the burden of which was, it is a group of 20 or is it trustees 20? Are you acting as trustees for the world? Or are you just looking after yourself? In other words, the G7, G8 become a wider magic circle. Is that what's happened? Or you have to demonstrate it. And I must pay tribute to Canada, Prime Minister Harper, who invited us and who set the ball rolling in this respect. We had a recommendation that a working group on development and resources should be created to give continuity between the summits of the G20. There's a big credibility gap as to what exactly is the difference which it is making, uh, the G20. There is, there was a working group created. After that, and we are engaging, we engaged with Korea. And both of us went and met President Sarkozy as the chair of the Khan Summit in G20 this time. What we emphasize at any point of time depends on the global circumstances. And this time we are emphasizing trade, always trading your way out of poverty, trade creation. The pressures on you, trade finance will always be the most important at all times. So trade, financial inclusion, in other words, not just a credit uh, system which is being used by the big companies, the corporations, but an enlarged participation of people who can access money and are part of the, of the banking and the credit system, women, young people, disabled, there's financial inclusion. Once again, growth with resilience. As I sometimes say that you know, the board we are in seems to be more like snakes and ladders. You feel you're about to reach 100, and therefore the sunny uplands, and the snake swallows you, and you go right down. That is a point of resilience. One, the big difference within definitionally between a developed country and a developing country seems to me to be that a developed country can never again become a developing country. But a developing country wanting to escape from that you know, position of, of, of poverty, it's a very, very long climb, and you never know when the snake's going to swallow you, and the snake can be your global financial turmoil, it can be the environmental degradation of the world, it can be the fuel crisis because of what's happened to the prices, how many dollars a barrel, it could be a food crisis, we've been through all of them. They're all with us, they never go away. They're simply dormant. They're in recession. They come back again uh, later. So um, this, this, uh, this whole idea that you know the G20, when it meets, has to be a custodian of the interests and the problems of the younger states, is very much together with the Francophonie, and we are given the intellectual lead in it. We prepare the papers for it and give it to all the Sherpas, all the 20 Sherpas, uh, is, 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 is done by, by us. I'm just looking at the clock. And, you know, I've done quite well considering I had a very bad throat to begin with. But I wanted to give you a flavor in this talk about uh, the global value which the Commonwealth brings. Because uh, of the simple reason that very often, because we are, as compared to many other bodies in the world, a smaller body, somebody reminded us that the number of people in the Commonwealth Secretariat is less than the canteen in the UN because we are a very modestly financed uh, body because somehow we have this cultural identification uh, with uh, the United Kingdom therefore we are a niche body we do things which are unexceptional very useful, very helpful to everybody but in the end a kind of a footnote to what everyone else is doing in a more important way. I've always felt that is not the case at all. From the very beginning, 
which is why I began with 1949 and even earlier, the Commonwealth has been an extraordinary force for wisdom in the world and exercised the global wisdom function and, and made understood the perspectives of what you might just call collective sanity on which our decision making has to be ultimately based. There's a very long way to go because we are a very ambitious body. Our leaders are very ambitious about making a contribution. There's a lot of institutional skepticism around in the world because when you see the world in turmoil, you wonder, well, you know, all of these bodies were created to somehow take care of all this. So have you been sleeping on your job? What's been happening? And the Commonwealth is not exempt from it. I welcome it. I welcome all forms of criticism because my attitude is very simple one. Go for the point which is being made and evaluate the point which is being made. Can you learn from it? or not. And that's all you need to know. Because all secretariats, all CEOs of uh, institutions will always be subject to this impatience which is around us. Why aren't things happening better or more than the world has a right to expect? And it's a very fair question. I think the Commonwealth has made enormous contributions in the past and going forward I think it will make even more uh, important contributions. and. The last point I want to make is it's a very contemporary organization. This needs to be said. Because of its old affiliations with the past, people feel uh, that, you know, it, is, it is somehow belongs to the past. It doesn't. It has always been ahead of the curve in the cutting edge, whether politically, whether in a sense of the new world that was arising. And I want to leave you with one thought. Formerly, you may have thought that worrying about small states and small human communities is excellent. It should be embraced. But it's an ideological position, but not anymore. Because the world is now demonstrating that if you are not succeeding in looking after everybody, you're creating wounds to which a virus you don't want around attaches itself. If you have one society which has failed, you may have pirates from it. Another one will get narcotic traders in it. A third one will get fundamentalists in it. And it's going to go on like that. Just as in our own human body, you cannot say, you know, that if my major organs are fine, I don't have to worry about anything else. Everything is linked to everything else. You're either whole and healthy, or you're not. The Commonwealth has always understood that. Thank you. Now, voice permitting, um, there is time for a few questions. If anyone, would you like to start in the center? May I come last? I would like to come last. <laughs> oh, certainly. Down here. Thank you very much for your remarks. Uh, as you mentioned, the Commonwealth has at times suspended members from the organization. Uh, and you, you touched on this in your talk, but I want to ask you to elaborate on your feeling as to whether or not this has been a politically successful strategy uh, on the part of the organization. I think so. And I'm glad you asked that question because one of the very surprising experiences I had but also a very revealing one. Because I'm not going to name the country because, you know, it was a one-on-one -on -one meeting when a foreign minister, one of the previously suspended countries came to me and said, SG, I just wanted to meet you for one reason. I wanted to thank the Commonwealth now that I'm able to for suspending my country. And then the penny dropped, you know, in my head as well. What he was saying was, and I said, well, will you elaborate? He says, well, it, the respect which the Commonwealth has as a value-based organization is so enormous that among the people, no matter what gloss was being put by the government, if the people knew that this country, my country, is suspended from the Commonwealth, it's very bad news for us as citizens and as, as a country which respects the rule of law and democracy. And it kept alive also our struggle to a different kind of country and, and, and governance to which we were striving. So in this one respect it has been success, successful, but the other is 
that once you suspend the country, you can't participate in shoguns, you can't do all that kind of thing. But one part of it which is kept open is to engage with that country and see what help can be given so that you can go back to where you started from and you can, the derogation for which you were suspended can be removed. This doesn't happen immediately, but progressively when a country finds that the time has come or political forces are in play, when they find that the time has come, then they, then they talk to us. So uh, I think it has been very useful, but it's very important now. You know, one of the similes I use is, you know, instead of just pointing to a train wreck, let's also worry about when the you know, wagons are wobbling on the, on the, on the rail track. And I think after Perth, uh, we have reached that point. Uh, Mr. Sharma, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is about as old as the Commonwealth itself, and I was quite struck in your presentation by the extent to which you did not touch on the issue of human rights as compared to issues of economic development and trade. And I think there's a, a widespread sense that on the issue of human rights, frequently the Commonwealth seems to be more, more principled, more political than principled. Um, do you think that, that currently the Commonwealth is taking its best efforts to be uh, what you've called a, a voice of wisdom in the area of human rights protection? Well, I, I thought I'd made the, common, the human rights point uh, adequately, strongly, but thank you for asking that. It gives me an opportunity to say that, in fact, you know, young people, women, and human rights is what we call cross-cutting subjects in, in the Commonwealth, which means everything you do, you must be mindful of how it is serving uh, the human rights purpose. And my example of the Biketawa Declaration or what happened in Africa and the Mo Ibrahim Wars, that this is what you've been able to do in this field of human rights, otherwise you wouldn't be getting uh, all of those grades. Our approach is uh, principally to strengthen uh, the human rights abilities and institutions and capacities within the countries themselves. This brings some criticism with it because people read a lot of what others are saying about what's happening in the country and so what is the Commonwealth saying. There is a requirement which has been partly met in Perth, but it, uh, we have to, to fill in that lacuna that there should be no vacuum of non-communication left as to where Commonwealth stands on a thing. But our orientation always is through human rights organizations, through strengthening them, through legislation, through, through getting them, encouraging them to subscribe to human rights conventions, in all of these ways, get your strength internalized. There's a great psychological angle in this. States behave very much like human beings. If I tell myself that I need to improve myself, you know, then I, I, I create a credible program for doing that. But I'm not very amused if everyone else keeps on telling me that I must do that. And this involves all kinds of implicit uh, beliefs that one is superior to the other. Is that why they, they're saying? History in the back of your mind which is why it's so important, and this has been one of the great contributions of the Commonwealth, to make member states themselves believe that this is what you owe to your citizens. This is not what you owe to external public opinion. So this is, uh, you know, a, a distinction we've, we've always drawn. But now, coming forward, after what's uh, happened in Perth, this form of engagement is going to go up and it's going to get more visible. And the Secretary General has, is being encouraged to make uh, their position known more clearly. Till now, the position was very clear that Secretary General can speak on collective concerns, otherwise engage below the radar screen with the country concerned. But uh, one of the issues there is you can engage with the country concerned, you can engage, but the country may not. But now, because of the, uh, the new um, guidelines that have come to us, uh, the CMAG, or the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group, 
will also be in the picture. And if through his good offices, through my good offices, I'm not able to engage satisfactorily with the country, then I have someone to narrate that to. And that is a very, very significant uh, uh, step. So I think as far as human rights is concerned, that in the end is the key. What is it that all of us are striving for except our own fundamental individual human rights? Um, Mr. Sharma, uh, first question is like the regional groups like SARC or ASEAN, is, is it, uh, does it contradict or does it complement the role of Commonwealth? And second is there seems to be a tussle between the G20 and Commonwealth because the condition now is like G20 is urging the emerging economies to help uh, them. So I mean I believe like uh, one of the one of the primary reasons is like you expect G20 to aid, give foreign aid to Commonwealth like small countries. So, I mean you 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 sign an agreement with them and they agree to do something. But do you think it's feasible in the long run? So how do you see its implementation if it kind of gets failed after a few years, which is seems likely by going by the current conditions? So how do you see its implementation in the long run? But to your first question, there's no question it's complementary. Because, um, for instance, in Africa, I'm planning now a visit to the African Union in a few weeks. <coughs> we work very closely with them. We work with ECOWAS in West Africa. We work with SADC in South Africa. I was uh, a week ago the summit of SARC, which is primarily South Asian countries. One of the big post-war lessons is the whole regions come up together, not individual countries. And um, Europe had to wade through blood to learn this lesson. It was very quickly learned by the rest of the world. ASEAN had individual country conflicts. But they, they, they understood one principle very, very quickly. The more you work in areas where cooperation is possible, the less important in size your differences seem to be because they're put in perspective. Whereas if you keep on talking about differences and make your cooperation conditional to them, then you know, the entire horizon is covered by your differences. And Mercosur in Latin America, the whole world is, is, is following that. So we work, of course, individually with member states, as I mentioned, but also to the extent they want it with regional organizations as well. Because most of the regional organizations want the same, want to serve the same goals as we do. Um, so they are complementary. Now for your other question, one of the important things which has happened in the world is the capacity which has arisen in the developing world to do a lot more for other developing countries. When the Commonwealth started in 65, this was very, very low. But right now, the flavor of them is China and India are the poorest countries in the 65. Now, the flavor of the century seems to be China, India, Indonesia, South Africa, all of these emerging economies. It is possible in the Commonwealth to use many of them. So one of the things which I emphasize is that always be mindful of the outcome, not just the income you're putting into something. Because if you can make these countries do more for other developing countries, through whatever ways they can, you've got the outcome. And you should be participating in it. That's the significance of the G20. Because the G20 is no longer G7 or G8, which is a certain type of grouping, you know, where the Industrial Revolution first started. And the credibility of the G20 when they say something is greater because it embraces uh, more players now. And our point is that the more evidence the world has that you are listening to the rest of the world, the more credible you're going to be. And we feel that the Commonwealth, together with the Francophonie, which is comfortably more than half of the world, can play that role. Would you like to ask the last question? I have been following the Commonwealth uh, for the last uh, five, six uh, decades. Um, uh, many around the world have been becoming um, disappointed with the Commonwealth, and fortunately, and they have been feeling that it is irrelevant, it must be phased out or something like that. But in 2009, um, uh, Commonwealth conversations were called up, 
and uh, people from all over the Commonwealth countries uh, um, went at their um, disappointment and um, that was taken up to the uh, Chogum 2009 in um, the Caribbean and um, uh, they formed the EPG, Eminent Persons Group, which form, uh, made more than 100 recommendations. That means uh, it's sort of, uh, sort of overhauling the Commonwealth. Um, uh, EPG, with, uh, and before that, the Commonwealth Secretariat has been refusing to pronounce human rights. And now within the last uh, few months, they have come out, okay, let us talk about the human rights. So that gentleman who asked the question, uh, CMAG in September refused to talk about, they refused to look at the human rights part of the uh, recommendations made by the EPG. And even at, um, in uh, Perth, uh, Chogum, uh, the, the, the heads of government refused to uh, published the EPG report the day before their, uh, the, the, uh, till the co conference started. They were uh, very scared of being talked about human rights. They are very allergic to human rights. And uh, uh, even after the end of the common uh, Chogum Perth, a lot of people have been very much disappointed. We are yet to see what um, the Commonwealth Secretariat is doing, going to do about the recommendations of the EPG. Otherwise, the Commonwealth must be phased out because uh, Commonwealth members do very poorly at UNHRC, Human Rights Council. So human rights is uh, very allergic to them. We must make something, uh, some change, so that they can take up the human rights and uh, resolve the conflicts afflicting a lot of the Commonwealth countries. They have been talking, uh, the, at least in the last 15 years, they have been talking about the military coup in Fiji and Pakistan. Whereas so many Commonwealth countries have been afflicted with uh, uh, vicious, uh, um, protracted conflicts about which the Commonwealth didn't open its mouth. And there has been genocide in some countries, including Sri Lanka. Thank you. Um, well, <coughs> question too. No, no, well, I, mean, I don't see where the question was, but I just want to uh, say that you know, I must come to the defense of, of uh, uh, the heads of the Commonwealth uh, in this. Um, it's not at all true to say that they either ducked or averted uh, their gaze from something which was important to be done collectively. It is the heads themselves who asked for these two reports. It is the heads who told the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group we have to do more, come up with suggestions. They met over 18 months, made these suggestions. When the meeting was held, about half of the membership took the floor to congratulate the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group. And they accepted it without demur and not a single change. Say, yes, this we have to do, this we asked you to do, thank you for doing this. So it is not at all true that uh, they, they move with the times and uh, they want to be uh, worthy of the aspirations which their own people have uh, in this respect. I think for the reasons I have given, the Commonwealth has been a remarkable organization for the contribution and outcomes which it has made and it is moving, I think, dramatically uh, with the times. But you have to bear in mind that um, it does not enjoy a kind of commonality which comes from being either equally rich or equally in part of the same region or equally the same kind of uh, territory. It is a very diverse organization. And so whatever it says, the value it has is because it is a diverse organization. And the aspirations of people will always be in ahead or what any institution, I can, it's very difficult to think of an institution which meets, meets the wholehearted approval and applause of anybody in the world. Institutions are always running to catch up with what people want from it. The heads of the Commonwealth are very much alive to this and what they've been able to achieve both in value creation and wealth creation recently has been very remarkable.
And there, I must say on behalf of us all, a warm word of thanks to you and to you for your questions. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you.